0: Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale Up Yon Macool, Cool Cullen, Dear draw the sorrows, Grown, you wail. From giants right down to fairies, of the drooping and solitary. And those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka fireside, the Merrill fireside. Kings and queens, fact and heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm. Fireside. Hello, and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology, retell it, talk about the story itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan, and I am your host and your Fireside Bard. It's episode three of Fireside, which is brilliant. Two in the can, everything's great, fantastic stuff. If you're new, if you, this is the first episode you're listening to, thank you for listening. Uh, I recommend maybe you go back to the beginning. This podcast should be able to be listened to out of order, absolutely. But in the first episode, I gave a bit of a background of an introduction to the podcast. And the second episode, I started the history of the mythology. Um, so we're hopefully building a bit of a pattern here. We're going to get clearer and smoother. Hopefully there'll be less rambling. There'll be less M's and stuff as I get a bit more comfortable with that. We can only hope. So today, we're back to folklore. We're going to get right to the story, because that's what I want the main thing to be. This is a story that, like, the ti- I thought the title was great, so I started reading it, and it turned out to be one of my favourite ones that I found. So I thought it was a great one to get straight into with episode three. It's a story of merrows, and you'll discover all soon enough. I was going to spoil it there, but I won't spoil it. I'll just get right down to the story and stop my aimless babbling. We'll talk more after. But here it is. The wonderful tune. Once upon a time at the foot of the Wicklow mountains lived the greatest illin piper in all of Ireland. Like the vast majority of illin pipers and harpists for that matter, our piper was blind. But fortunately, he had his loving Irish mammy by his side to guide him from town to town and gig to gig. Now it should be said that it was not for any great amount of skill that this piper was so well renowned. He certainly was incredibly skilled at playing his instrument, but so were others around Ireland. What made this piper the best was his memory. He could remember and play absolutely any tune upon one hearing only. He was guided around the entire country by his mother, collecting a repertoire of tunes to beat any other musician in the world. But there was a legend of a travelling piper who could play a tune that was objectively the greatest of all time. But he never played it, and refused to teach it to anyone. Long had the blind piper and his mother heard of this legendary musician, but they never encountered him. But one day, as the piper and his mother were trekking down to Kerry, they passed an old man sitting at the side of the road by a campfire. "'I smell fire, Mammy,' Said the piper. A right juice you are, replied the mother. Whatever would I do without you? They both approached the old man. Pardon me, sir, said the mother. Could we sit by our fire and possibly have a bit of grub? Of course you can, said the old man. I've been expecting you. You have? said the mother. How? I am very famous, said the piper. Shut up, you, replied the mother. "'No, no, he's right,' said the old man. "'Word of your son's musical achievements has reached even my old ears. "'So sit down, both of you. "'I have a proposition for you.' "'They both sat. "'The mother began. "'Is this about a booking for a gig? "'Because I have to take—' "'It's not about a bloody gig!' interrupted the old man. "'I am the travelling piper. "'And not just any travelling piper.' THE Travelling Piper As piper As in the Piper who can play the wonderful tune, that's right This silenced both the young Piper and his mother The old man went on As I said, word has reached my ears of your skill, young man And if you've heard of me, you'll know that I never teach the wonderful tune to anyone But the stories of how you can play any piece of music upon one hearing only intrigues me. Perhaps you can be the one to carry on the legacy of the wonderful tune. So I'm willing to propose a challenge. I will play the wonderful tune once, and once only. And you must learn it from only that hearing, and immediately play it back to me. But be warned, the wonderful tune is perfect. Note for note, and if you even play one note off perfection, the tune will be useless to you, and you will be cursed to never know true illin piping glory. The mother turned to her son, and son to mother. The young piper said, "Let us pipe." The old man took out his pipes, and the young piper his. The second the old man started to play the mother leapt to her feet and started dancing, almost involuntarily. The young piper listened attentively until he felt his own feet start to tap. He attempted to resist, but the tune was just too good. When the old man finished playing, he smiled a smug smile, certain that the young piper had been too distracted by the power of the tune to possibly be listening to it. But the young man exhaled, wiped the sweat from his forehead, sat down with his own illin pipes and began to play. The smug smile on the old man's face began to slowly fade as he felt his feet begin to move. He had known this tune for years, but had never felt its power himself. The mother, meanwhile, was still dancing too. The young piper finished. Unable to see what had happened, he asked, "'Was that it?' "'It was indeed.' Said the old man And once he said that The fire went out And the old man vanished What happened, Mammy? Your man just disappeared That was a bit rude, wasn't it? Shut up, you No come on We've got a gig to get to The pair didn't have to travel far Before they reached their destination A picturesque little village On the coast of Kerry Their venue for the night Was the most popular pub in the village They arrived And the piper prepared to play He couldn't wait to try out his new tune, unaware, as he was, of its true power. His mother had not told him what had happened, only seen the prospect of more fame, glory and gigs for her son once he played the tune even once. The young Piper began to play, and of course, as soon as he did, every man, woman and child in that pub stopped what they were doing and began to dance. Once the wonderful tune had ended, the crowd erupted into applause. The village dance master approached the piper and said, That was the best tune I have ever heard. Can I buy you a drink? I wouldn't say no, was the reply, for apparently no piper or schoolteacher ever refused to drink. What'll you have? Anything that isn't plain water would be grant. Have you any whiskey? Have I any? I have a bottle of the finest whiskey in the world. Unfortunately, I've no glass. Ah, that's grand. The whiskey's what's important. And with that, the young man grabbed the whiskey and sculled the entire bottle. He then handed the dance master back the empty bottle. You are not wrong. Mmm, that is the finest whiskey I have ever tasted. The dance master was outraged. You absolute divil! You didn't have to drink the whole thing. I've been saving that bottle for twenty-seven years. I never even got to taste it myself. Well, first of all... There's no need for that kind of language. And you must excuse me. I I think I need to sit down. There are not many people who could down an entire bottle of whiskey and stay standing. And the young piper certainly wasn't one of them. He stumbled back over to his seat and scooped up his Ellen pipes. For although when the majority of us are in the grips of inebriation, we go looking for love, a fight, or a bin to puke in... The musician will always go looking for his instrument, and also the other three. Usually the effects of alcohol would impair the musician's skill, but for whatever reason, this particular bottle of Baha gave the piper Dutch courage like no other. He began to play the greatest version of the greatest tune that had ever been heard. The whole room started to dance uncontrollably once more, but the impact of the tune extended further than that, All around the village, people arose from their beds. Even thieves and robbers halted their illegal activities to have a bop to this absolute banger. Most unusually of all, at the seashore, fish leapt out of the sea and started to have a boogie as well. To their death, one would assume. But from among those dancing fish rose a beautiful woman of the sea, a divine merrow with green hair and wearing a dress of foam white with translucent skin. The merrow made her way through the village to the very pub the music was emanating from. She walked through the crowd, right up to the young piper, and said to him, "'That is the most beautiful music I have ever heard, and I'd like you to come and live with me in the ocean and to become my husband.' The piper, while still playing, said, "'You're drunk again, Mammy?' What did we say about this? The merrow realized the piper was blind and said, I am not your mother, young piper. I could tell you what I am, but I think it would be better if you felt it. The merrow leaned over and kissed the piper, and he kissed her wet, salty lips and felt her seaweed green hair brush his face, and he knew exactly what she was. It is not every day that a blind illon piper is propositioned by a merrow. But still, the young piper was reluctant. "'I would love to come and live with you, "'but if I can't even see on land, "'I wouldn't have a whole heap of luck breathing underwater.' "'The merrow smiled. "'Fear not, my new beloved, for I am a princess, "'and my father is king of the Irish Sea, "'which is the best sea, "'and he will give you gills to breathe with "'and fish eyes to see, "'so that you may live and see.' "'Under the sea, 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 do you get "'Oh, no, no, I get it. Say no more.' "'At no point in the preceding conversation "'did the young piper ever stop playing that wonderful tune. "'The gig is the gig, and the gig must go on, always.' "'But when the piper's mother saw what was happening, "'she was absolutely horrified. "'She thought to herself, "'Ah, my son can't marry her. He's only just met her. "'Also she's weird-looking, and a fish.' "'Am I to have a heck or a cod for a grandchild? "'Should it come that one day on the boil, with salt and butter, "'I could end up eating my own grandchild?' "'Unfortunately for the mother, "'as much as she wanted to go over and put a stop to this coupling, "'she just couldn't stop dancing. "'She tried calling to her son, pleading him not to leave her, "'after all that she had done for him, caring for him his entire life. "'But the young piper was hooked.' He turned to her on his way out. "'Sorry, mammy, but I'm in love. "'I'll never be able to thank you for all you've done for me. "'But I should have gone off on my own a long time ago. "'But I couldn't, because I was dependent on you for your eyes. "'Now I have a chance at both sight and love. "'I don't know which I thought was more impossible. "'Now both are a reality. "'I have to take this chance. "'But I promise that on this day... Every single year I will send a piece of burnt wood to the seashore of this village so that you will know I am alive, well, and happy. And with that the young piper let the marrow lead him to the ocean. Knowing well his mother would physically stop him if she could, he never stopped playing that tune until he was submerged under water, and it was too late. Though the exact date has been long lost, To this day, the young Piper still sends a burnt piece of wood to the water's surface for his mother to find. Why, he didn't send her something nice or practical like shoes or jewellery or sea shoes or sea jewellery, no one can say, but he kept his word nonetheless. Tragically, though, the poor Piper's mother wouldn't live to see even one of those useless pieces of burnt wood, for she died not three weeks later. Some say it was the heartbreak, Most say it was the sheer exhaustion from so much dancing. And as for the wonderful tune, it was never played again, and won't be, until that piper returns from the sea to pass it on to another extraordinary young musician. The end. There we have it. So that was a wonderful tune. I hope you enjoyed it. It's just kind of gas. Like, this, th- this is not one that I would expect people to know. It doesn't seem to be that popular. And so this is one that I hope, like, yeah, will be the first time people will have heard it uh, and that will like it. To start off with, I'd like to talk a bit about Thomas Crofton Croker, who wrote this. This is, like, mid mid-19th century, like mid-1800s. So this is pre-Lady Gregory Yates, this is pre-Gaelic revival, so this is, to Thomas Crofton Croker. this is considered the earliest uh, book of folktales in terms of contemporary folklore, Uh, the first time these stories were really written down. So Thomas Crofton Croker, he is the daddy, he's the godfather going back. And there's a couple of really interesting things about him. He isn't really considered a folklorist because he actually... Most of the stories he wrote weren't actually folktales, so like the wonderful tune seems to be an invention of his. He he was known for taking the beliefs he discovered by travelling around Ireland, he was from Cork, taking the beliefs and making them into story form, which is why I think this works as a story. So it's, in, it's interesting that it isn't. It, it most likely would have been heard in some form or something, and it certainly withdraws from beliefs and marrows and stuff, but uh, it very much is his own story. I have now I have done my own retelling of it, and there's a good few bits that I've added to it, but for the most part, uh, the elements are all Croker's. So Croker wrote a book called Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland. The first edition of it was released in 1825. The coolest thing, I think, about Croker is that he was friends with the Grimm brothers. And uh, the brothers Grimm wrote a German version of Croker's book of Irish folktales a year after it was published. You must forgive my horrendous pronunciation. Uh, Irish elfenmachen is the edition that they published the year later in 1826. So there was this correspondence between the two. Croker published six versions or six editions of... Volumes of uh, his fairy tales, and the third edition of which he he dedicates to the Grims. So there was very much this back and forth between them, which is really cool considering the Grims are very much, you know, the godfathers of all fairy tales in the Western world. Certainly, uh, it's really interesting that even they'd had an interest in Irish folklore as well, not just their own German folklore, which. It bolsters me a little bit as well, like knowing that they were there was the interest there and that they were discussed even back then, and that's obviously a faded sense, and so it gives me more reason to bring more of them back. There's a quote from one of uh, Croker's contemporaries that described him as little as a dwarf, keen-eyed as a hawk, and of easy preposing manners. I mean it's possibly no whether that uh, the kind of godfather of Irish fairy tales would be something so small. So let's then move on, and we'll talk a little bit about merrows. So merrows are the Irish mermaids. They have a lot in common, and then a lot of differences with the traditional version of mer- mermaids. Obviously, the the go to gospel is is the Little Mermaid. It's Hans Christian Andersen. Certainly, to modern audiences, then the Disney film will be the most known version. Really cool in the last... I think it's in the last year, it might have been two years ago, uh, the Irish author Louise O'Neill, she released uh, a version of The, uh, the a, littler, a Little Mermaid, a feminist retelling of The Little Mermaid, which is apparently incredible. It's dark as all hell. It's been on my to-read list for a while. Louise O'Neill is an absolutely incredible writer. Um, She wrote... Asking for it is probably the thing that she's most well-known for at the moment. It's just being adapted to the stage by the Abbey Theatre. But in the traditional image of mermaids, of course, it's the fish half on the bottom and human half on the top. Now, depending on which you go for your source, uh, some believe that merrows share this and some believe that they don't. In the case of the wonderful Chew and in the case of this story, it seems that they are different, that they have legs so they have green skin like seaweed green hair there are men but merrow itself is a is a female term it comes from old irish literally meaning sea maid. so merrow women uh, they had their they were to be very very beautiful with their green skin and their seaweed green hair and yeah their white dresses and they did have webbed hands and either a fish tail or webbed feet as well flat feet for for the swimming kind of like uh, more like the creatures in Goblet of Fire in the fourth Harry Potter book and I suppose the film for Image when he takes the gillyweed kind of what he turns into with his with his flat webbed feet and his webbed fingers that would be what a Mero would more look like Mero men on the other hand were supposed to be ugly as all hell they had uh, they would green teeth green hair as well they had pig's eyes and red noses the red nose, I don't know where the pig's eyes came from now. I'm trying to picture pig's eyes. Like would that necessarily be a bad thing? Pigs have quite friendly eyes, don't they? I'll have to look up. I'll have to Google some pictures of pigs uh, to confirm or deny that. The red nose is... That's thought that that might be, come from drinking brandy. Damn you, Peppa Pig. Or oh, they are quite dark, actually. I just look at pictures of pigs. God, pigs are so cute. They're very much just big black eyes. Yeah, I can imagine that on a human, that that wouldn't be too great. Or on a humanoid creature, anyway. It's very important that the merrow men are supposed to be considered so ugly, though, because merrow women had a particular fondness for humans. Uh, and they were often known to have handsome fishermen lovers, uh, which always usually ended in disaster and a sighting of a marrow was considered a bad luck, a bad omen uh, by fishermen. he would consider that there was going to be oncoming gales or an oncoming storm or something obviously in this case in the case of the wonderful tune she's a nice marrow we hope we don't see what happens i like to think that your man our blind piper that he got his happy ending it is a it's a bittersweet ending to it certainly causing with the death death of the mother and everything. That's I think that's one of the reasons I love this story so much. I think this really gets down to the root of just, it's a real Irish story. You know, there's a lot of tropes like in terms of Irish music and dancing and the Irish mammy and everything and then it just kind of twists it. The real the thing that really grabbed me that I think is absolutely hilarious is that the big reason the mother doesn't want the son to marry the marrow is that she believes she'll end up eating her own grandchild totally by accident. That I almost took word for word from Croakers. There's a, there's a few bits I added. There was no uh, old man in the original version. I just... It, it didn't say where he discovered this tune. He kind of could always play it, but I liked the idea of it being a thing that's passed down and that this is a song that did exist that doesn't exist anymore or won't until he returns. So yeah, the Merrow women, they liked, they liked their men. Uh, they liked their human men, although it nearly always ended in disaster. Sometimes it is said that they took the shape of hornless cows to come on land. That would be more the merrows that have the tail, I would imagine. Our our lass, our marrow, seems to definitely have legs, for sure. And the big, uh, big interesting thing, the red cap. So all merrows had a red cap, which signalled... Kind of signaled their class or their elegance among other sea creatures and other humanoid sea creatures. Mero's were generally considered all royalty. You know that they they were either married or or daughters of a king or queen of the sea, and their red cap was where a lot of their power came from. So, some thought that a merrow had to give their red cap to a human to come on shore, but they couldn't return to the sea unless they got their cap back. So a lot of humans would try and get the red cap off the marrow and then hold on to it. Because even though the marrows would fall in love with the humans and a lot of them settled down and had families, and there's even reports, like, in the eighth book, there's a recorded case at the beginning of the last, or the second last century, so at the beginning of the, I think at the start of the 1800s, in Bantry, in Cork, there was someone with their... With scaly skin and is considered to be like the, the descendant or the offspring of a marriage between a marrow and a human. There is like a strong theory that folklore in general or like fairy lore, and particularly with changelings, that changelings was a, it was an excuse or it was a it was a reason, it was rationale for when they couldn't explain a physical or mental disability in in old Ireland. And certainly, like a, a child of a marrow a, in Bantry, that recorded case that was that was most likely what that was—an undiagnosed physical abnormality or disability before before people knew what they what they were. That's what they have to attach meaning onto it, and so that was what I imagine was that for it. I'd like to talk a little bit about the color red because my research for this was the first time I discovered that red. In every country, apparently, is the color of magic. That's why the hat was red. We might touch on a little bit on uh, leprechauns at some point. They're kind of the dirty word. Um, if you want a great, if you want a great story on, uh, or a great podcast on leprechauns, listen to one of the most recent episodes of Sexy Beasts, Tony Cantwell and Mark Jagos podcast, which is also on the HeadStuff Podcast Network. I'll be honest, I, I'm a huge fan of it, and uh, when I First, got involved with Head Stuff. That was, I got feed a little starstruck that I was going to be in the same studio as Sexy Beasts recording. It's absolutely hilarious. It's really interesting. It's absolute filth. Uh, and the two lads are great. They're really entertaining. Uh, but one of their most recent episodes is on leprechauns and about trying to defend the often maligned symbol of our country and make a case for it. And I'm sure, inevitably, we'll chat about leprechauns as well. But the one thing I will say is that leprechauns, before they were green, before they were made green, it was thought by Darby O'Gill and the Little People, the Disney film from the 50s, 60s, um, that that was the first time that they were transitioned into the green colour that we know. But before that, they were all red. Like nearly all other fairies, they all wore red caps, red cloaks, because red is apparently the colour of magic. Because to reference another... Another podcast that I'm hugely fond of, the Blind Boy podcast, he did he did an episode a good few months back, I think, on Caravaggio, and he talked about paint and about the expensive colours. He talks a lot about blue. It's like the reason that the Virgin Mary was blue was because blue was a really expensive colour. And red would have obviously been one of the... Uh, uh, an expensive colour as well. So, interesting that red is the colour of magic Uh, and it makes sense. Like I suppose there's very little, I'm trying to think of anything in the natural world that is red. It's not a colour that you really see naturally that often, maybe in like a flower or something, but it's the colour of, it's the colour of fire and it's the colour of blood and that's why there is like this supernatural, magical element to the colour of red and why it was so associated then with magic. In terms of getting back to the marrows, if you look reference again over to Greek mythology mermaids and marrows they're very similar to sirens so the sirens most famously from the Odyssey when Odysseus and his crew they're sailing home and one of their many 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 interruptions and many things that go wrong is that they're called to an island by sirens it's the sound of beautiful beautiful women singing and it draws them there and Odysseus knew that this was happened going to happen so he like had himself tied to his mast and like his ears plugged uh while a lot of the rest of his crew were lured to their death where the sirens eat them this parts of this mythology definitely made their way into Irish folklore then because the marrow particularly has a lot of siren-like quality, there is thoughts that like you can hear them singing under the waves and that they lure men to their deaths and all. And this is definitely an amalgamation that came from the influence of Homer and of the Greek myths, and just makes it all wraps it up as makes of one one scary, scary lady. I have this little book, this pocket book of Irish fairies. Uh, if he's listening, I know he won't let buy. It. Uh, I did borrow it from my friend Lee Coffey and I as of yet have not given him back to To such an extent that he's actually bought another book of this which makes me feel bad but it means I can hang on to it but it's a gorgeous little book on Irish fairies and I was looking into it to have sections on, on the Merrow but the big thing uh, in the little fairy books is of course it says that like they should never be associated that they're friendly for the most part they're all like all fairies they're evil Malevolent, they don't like us, they're not even there. they just don't like humans. Fairies do not like humans. Big reason we thought if you haven't listened to episode two, the two of Dedanham, the old gods of Ireland, when they lost their power and people stopped worshiping them and they uh, went away, they went into the hills and they over time they became the fairies. but they're still they still stayed angry at the human race for stopping worship them and for, for their fall from power and that is why fairies of all descriptions and supernatural creatures why they have this absolute vendetta against the poor old human race that's like a good bit of background into the history of Mero's I've said Mero's way too much now it's a tricky word to even say in your mouth marrow. but will start to wrap up there if you enjoy this podcast if you enjoy listening to it uh, please subscribe to it of course You can find me uh, at Twitter, at Olahan Solo, uh, O-L-O-H-A-N-S-O-L-O, one word, uh, or at Instagram at the same name, at Olahan Solo. And you can like the Fireside page on Facebook. All likes and subscribes, incredibly appreciated. So, I'll start to wrap up then. So that was the wonderful tune. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Next week, we're going to dive back into Mythology. We're going to take a little bit of a look at the reign of Porel Brez, which, spoiler alert, was not so lucky. Thank you so much to the good people here at The Good Ship Headstuff for their incredible support in allowing me to do this podcast. As I said, I've had an absolute ball recording these past three episodes, researching them and everything. But before I start to ramble anymore, I'll go on. So thank you so much for listening. We'll see you all next week by the fireside. Good luck. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.